Greetings in, in Jesus' name, and I welcome each and every one of you to this portion of the service here today. This morning, I, uh, I've got a story to start off with, and uh, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and we'll get started from there. Uh, I got this story from uh, when I was studying from Freddie Fritz. During the 2007 NFL regular season, New England Patriot quarterback, Tom Brady set the record for most touchdown passes, 50 in a regular season, paving the way for, his, for winning the MVP award. At the age of 30, he had already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that set him apart as one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. In 05, 2005, Tom Brady was interviewed by 60 Minutes journalist Steve Kraft. Despite the fame and career accomplishments he had, already re- he had accomplished already, Brady told Kraft that it felt like something was still lacking in his life. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still lack there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. Croft compressed Brady as to what the answer was, and Brady added, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Brady is surprisingly frank about his quest for finding the meaning in life. People today want to live a meaningful life. So what is the meaning of life? Is life really worth living? So what is the meaning of life? That whole thought has led me today and uh, I guess today's sermon and also several years ago I read through the book of Ecclesiastes and I was intrigued by it I enjoyed it and it has stuck with me over over the years here and yet it can be kind of a a tiny bit of a difficult book Um, some of the quotes uh, some of the commentators on the book of Ecclesiastes Just to be straight up, some of them call it a difficult book. Some say it's the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret and teach. No book of the Bible has been more misunderstood and yet yet as the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of the puzzling books of the Bible, according to some. I do believe that the book of Ecclesiastes gives us the very meaning of life. I understand why some of these say these things, and uh, before I get started, I'm going to make a few comments here. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read that, and all we'll probably get through today, you're going to probably walk out of here and go, dude, can we be inspired by anything? Like, it's just all doom and gloom in a sense. He, he talks about vanity is vanities. Uh, this didn't do me any good. That didn't do me any good. And until the end of the book, 
and I'm going to say that up front so we don't wonder what, what's wrong with me today, that at the end of the book, he does give the meaning of life. I do believe that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes um, can be enjoyed. I believe it can teach us something if we open our hearts to it. If I understand it right, Ecclesiastes was written roughly around 935 B.C. Most people feel Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There is some out there that disagree with that statement. Um, they feel it would have been written late in Solomon's life. There is some commentaries and some people make the argument because he never names it. He says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But if you take some of the Greek meaning and the Hebrew meaning back, they would have, maybe it was not Solomon. It may have been his brother. Although numerous of the scriptures throughout do line up very, very, very distinctly with Solomon's life. So majority of your people that study this would say that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. For whatever reason, he did not name himself. And uh, I guess as far as I'm concerned, I am going to let it at that. Um... As I said, I do believe it should make us think and understand there is a purpose for living, but what is our perspective on life? And that life without God is meaningless. And I think that's where we're getting to. So I'm not going to state that over and over and over and over, but I want us to draw some attention when we go through Ecclesiastes here today that I am not painting doom and gloom and there is no hope. There, that, that life is meaningless. I don't believe that. I don't believe the writer believed that. If you go to the end of the book, if you like to read books and you like to cheat and go to the end and read the last chapter or two, you can do the same thing here. And actually, I'd encourage you to do that. My goal today is to stimulate your thinking and that you dig into Ecclesiastes and you ask yourself if you're living a meaningful life. That's, that's one of my main goals here this morning. I do, not, I do believe that uh, in Ecclesiastics, this is not about the existence of God. The author is not an atheist, and God is always there. The, uh, the question is whether, or not, is whether or not God matters. The answer to that question is, is vitally connected to a responsibility to God that goes beyond this earthly life. Got a couple of statements from Enduring Word. What then is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? Is it, it is an essay in apologetics. It defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. And I want you to get that one right there. I believe it's an, uh, it's an essay of apologetics that defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of a life without God, if that makes any sense. I believe that this is a God-centered Bible, or a book. And Ecclesiastes does not pretend to preach the gospel. Rather, it encourages the reader to a God-centered worldview rather than falling victim to frustrations and unanswered questions. And when Christ came and died for us, everything makes sense. 
So, anyway, with them statements, I'd like us to look at Ecclesiastes, uh, the first few verses of Ecclesiastes um, as we go through this. Ecclesiastes 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And I'm going to stop right there because I do believe if we want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we do have to understand what he is saying here. And he is saying, um, verse 1 through 3, he, he bluntly just lays it out right up front. He says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And the first time I read this, and the first few things I'm thinking, and he says, what profit is for a man to do all this work? He said, you know, there's none. It's all vanity. So what is vanity? Anybody know what vanity is? What would you say vanity, describe vanity to me? Worthless. Yeah, a couple of them that I came up with. And what I, before I go on to explain vanity, I do, under, I do, it intrigues me. He says vanity to vanity, all is vanity. He doesn't give it as it could be vanity. I'm not sure. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. He says all is vanity. That's his opening statement. What a good way to start a book to make you read more, right? Nothing, useless, meaningless, a wisp of vapor, a puff of air, a mere breath. Here in a moment, then gone. One, one, one person described it as vanity is when you go out on a cold, cold morning and you breathe and you see that, you know, your breath take off and it's gone. Like it is there. You know that your breath is there, but it's that short little blip. It's next to nothing, to zero. And the author here, or I'm going to say Solomon, he goes, vanity of vanities. He didn't just say vanity, the ultimate vanity, the vanity of vanities. So the worthlessness of worthlessness, if I can say it that way. So not only are we just saying, hey, this was life as, you know, trying to accomplish this has been worthless. Like, dude, all this stuff that happens has been worthless of the worthless. So one more step deeper, and I want you to think about that one, too, because it adds to it. Now you might be sitting here saying, okay, why did he write this? All is vanity. I feel I have a meaningful life. And I honestly do. I feel that all of us can have a meaningful life. But I think what we're going to look into is our perspective of life. In the very next statement he says, he says, in which he toils under the sun. And I want us to, to realize that that phrase of under the sun refers to living in this world without taking God into context. One commentator said, the scene in mind is exclusively the world we can observe, and our observation point is at ground level. So we live under the sun, but God's perspective, as it is, is above the sun. And I want us to remember that one, too, because if I understand right, it's repeated 25 or 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, 
And what he is saying is, in the world that we see, the materialistic world. And the reason I stopped and pointed that out is because I want us to understand when he says vanity of vanities, and he says under the sun, he is referring to the fact of what is here, the materialistic thing. He has, in a sense, taken God out, if I can say it that way. And he says, uh, not taking God into account. Remember, this is an apologetics course here today. So, I want us to keep all that in mind as we dive into verses 4 through 7. One generation passes away and another comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, where they return again. I'm going to stop there. But take this, this book in sections. So... In verses uh, 4 through 7, I would say that he has explained the unending cycle of earth. Would that be fair? He says, from one generation to another. And you can sit here and you can say, okay, well, creation proves there's a God. But remember, we're taking, he is looking at it as taking God out of it. So this ending monotony of earth, the, the, the water flows into the ocean and what happens? Nothing. Does the ocean fill up? I mean, they may say it's inches full or whatever, whatever, whatever. But, you know, truthfully, if all this water is running in there, why wouldn't eventually Southern California be underwater, right? I mean, eventually it would fill up. Just like if you had that running into your pond at that kind of a rate, if you didn't have an outflow... It would overflow. That's what happens in our concept. But I like to point out, because he also talks about generation to generation. On one hand, you can say people are being born all the time. On the other hand, they die all the time. So you have birth, you have death. You have both of these things. This is just the cycle of life. And once again, and I'm going to remind you, this is under the sun. We can sit here and say creation shows the beauty of God. And creation amplifies the beauty of the creator. And you're right. But in a materialistic world, the river flows in, the ocean don't come up. Spring comes, followed by summer, and it goes around and around and around. And who are we? Why are we here? Why do we exist to watch this? Do we exist to watch this death thing and then the birth thing? Just for no reason at all? Just as intriguing? If you had a good year, you know 17 births and you only know 14 deaths, right? If you had a bad year, you know 48 deaths and only 4 births. The world's coming to a bad place, huh? It just really intrigues me how he states this. Because I believe that creation shows the creator. See, I'm not taking God out of my view. I'm not under the sun as he states it here. When he says under the sun, he says God is removed from this. And he says this is all happening in creation and it continues and continues. And he says, what's going on? It's just vanity. It's just like that poof of air. It's gone. You can't do anything about it. Verses 8 through 11. 
All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has, has been is what will be, and which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. This, this portion really, really intrigued me. And like I said here today, I, I uh, had to wonder with preaching this a little bit. I've been so, I love the book, so I hope it's making sense, but it can be kind of depressing. You know, he says, all things are full of labor. Uh, the eye was seeing, but it, it's not satisfied. Like, we can see all this wonderful thing, but that doesn't take care of our curiosity of, of life. You know, you can hear all this wonderful stuff. We never get done hearing. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of that? We have man's endeavors, man's efforts, full of labor. In fact, of all of that, are we satisfied? In fact, of all of this work, in fact, seeing the wonders of the world, in fact, hearing the most wonderful music or the most wonderful, whatever you want to say, sermon you've ever heard in your life, are you satisfied? Have you come to a point where, wow, if I could just, I mean, that, that sermon preached is just the most wonderful thing. Everything makes sense to me. Now I'm good. Or I have seen the Rockies. Or I have seen the Himalayas. Or I have seen, you name it, whatever it is. And you say, Okay, fine. And then he goes on to say there's nothing new. He says, there's nothing new. This is all done before you too. And then he ends it in verse 11 there. It doesn't end it. It goes on. This is the beginning of the book. But anyway, he says, there's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And I kind of struggled with that one. Because you would think that, you know, if you do things right, surely, years from now, somebody will remember what you've done. Right? I mean, at some point, he says there's no remembrance. But if you take God out of this picture, how many of you can name what somebody did in uh, 800 B.C.? Or 800 A.D. I mean, they're 1,600 years newer. We should surely remember who did something then, right? How about 1,800? We may know from history that somebody moved out here, you know, and moved west. Or we may understand this and that. But honestly, without God and whatever God has done and while you're living for something other than yourself, I think that's simply what he's stating. When you live for yourself... And you hear all you can hear, and you see all you can see for your own selfishness, there'll be no remembrance of you. I, I mean, I, I don't even know anything that happened in the 1500s. Very little. I'm not a historian. Fault me for that one. But I know, you know, the 1800s, we moved out here, and there's generation after generation. I think we're the fifth or the sixth one. You know very little of materialistic things. As I made the comment earlier, 
you pass your faith or you pass God on, things will continue to live. Back to my original story. It says all labor. And he says vanity of vanity. You've got a 30-year-old that won three Super Bowls. The top of his game. The best of what he does in business. I don't, I don't really care if it's football or what it is. I just found the story terribly intriguing. He was the best of the best at a very young age. And he says, there's got to be more to life. And he's right. Because if you're only living to be the best of whatever you're at, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. Moving on to verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and gasp, grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I committed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Once again, almost depressingly rhetorical. So the more you know, and the more knowledge you have, the more sorrow you have. You can't make anything that's crooked straight. And what is lacking cannot be numbered. And here he goes, and, and the reason I, I found this so intriguing in this section is he talks about wisdom. And this is where I do believe it probably was Solomon. And we know Solomon as the wisest man that ever lived. And he said, I attain greatness. I've attained, I have more wisdom than anybody who came before me. And yet it's like grasping at the wind. I want to know who of you can go out and catch the wind. Who can reach out and grab it, that you have something? It's gone. He says, all my greatness and all my wisdom that I had is like grasping the wind. Once again, under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. So he had wisdom. He said, it's all follies. It's a joke. He said, I commune with my heart in verse 16. Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all of Jerusalem. And I perceive this also as grasping for the wind. I think he's on to something here in this first chapter. Because even though he was wise, even though he was greater than all the other kings in Jerusalem, apart from Christ, it is all vanity. He talks about labor there, and later on in the chapter, if or the book, if God leads and we look at any more of it, he gets into all kinds of scenarios. But we spend a lot of time working. Not a bad thing. 
We spend a lot of time pleasure. Not all wrong. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a meaningless life if that's all we're living for. That sounds really, really harsh. But I think Solomon, I know he's right. I know that all the greatness and all the wisdom in the world, I know that having everything and all his toil and all the work that he did and all this stuff in an earthly manner is vanity. And I ask you that question, what are you spending your time with? Do you relate to any of this? What is the meaning of life? Who is the meaning of life? I'm going to let you hear today. We will get to the meaning of life. So I guess um, you'll have to come back if you want to know or look at the end of the book. Because I do believe we live a meaningful life. There's no doubt in my mind that we live a meaningful life for Jesus Christ. But in and of its of ourselves, all the wisdom, all the work, the creation, and everything else that is spinning is all vanity if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. May God bless you.